0: Calling all Arizona attorneys. Where are my brothers and sisters at? I hope you are ready to be educated and inspired. Or at least entertained. Because it is time for Clough's Notes on Arizona Lawyer Life. I'm your host, Arizona attorney, Brig Clough. My guest today is up and coming trial lawyer extraordinaire, my baby sister. Katie Clough Larson. Katie is just two years younger than me, and most siblings go to the same schools while they're growing up. But Katie really took this to the extreme. Not only did Katie follow me into elementary school, junior high, and high school, she also followed me to college at BYU. And after that, just for good measure, she followed me to law school at ASU, where Katie was a 1L during my final year of law school. Katie took several years off from law practice after graduating from law school to be a full-time mom to her young children. Katie joined my firm and returned to the full-time practice of law about five years ago, and she has been with me ever since. Katie practices exclusively in the areas of personal injury and wrongful death. In today's episode, we get tactical. We discuss a very powerful and underappreciated discovery tool, the organizational deposition, a.k.a. the 30B6 depo. If you are a litigator, then you need to know this stuff. So today, I thought we should spend a little time on a topic that I know is very important to all of us. It's something we think about all the time, but we don't necessarily talk about it.
1: <laughs> Can't wait to hear what this is. Yeah,
0: In fact, I, I heard a study that the average man thinks about this uh, almost every 45 seconds. It was something like that, and um, for for men or young men ages, you know, like 13 to to 25, it's actually more like every 12 seconds.
1: Wow, I'm, I'm not even sure I want to be a part of this conversation
0: anymore. No, you need to be. You need to be because you have three young boys. That's true. Yeah. Um, and what we're talking about, of course, is 30B6 depositions.
1: Ah, uh, yes. I, I actually start talking to my kids about that when they turn around eight.
0: Really? Yeah. You wait till they're eight years old, huh?
1: Well, you want them to be able to appreciate the gravity of...
0: An organizational something. deposition. Yeah. Um, by the time by the time they're eight, though, I think they've probably heard it all from their friends. <laughs> you know? Um, and there's a lot of misconceptions about organizational depositions. And that's why I think you should talk to your kids about it early. Okay. Here's one of the misconceptions that I want to address right from the start. You will sometimes hear these depositions referred to as PMK depositions Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and um, Katie
1: let me let me guess what that might be would
0: you would you like to take a guess at it
1: Uh, just give it a shot (laughs) could it be person most knowledgeable
0: that is exactly what PMK stands for Yes, that's right, Katie.
1: I got that wrong earlier, guys. Yeah, the, on our you. first
0: take, <laughs> you guessed that it was the name of a company that was famous for, um, was it having its deposition taken? Is that? <laughs> yeah. Um, so PMK stands for person most knowledgeable. And the reason that's important is because it's not important, really. It's not in the rule. Uh, it, and actually it is important because in law practice, when you wanna do an organizational deposition, uh, there's a real good chance that if the attorney on the other side of your case even knows what that is, sometimes they don't, um, that they will associate that with something that they heard called a PMK deposition. Mm. Um, At some point in time, I think the rules of procedure, maybe in California, because I hear California attorneys using uh, PMK quite a bit, maybe the rules of California procedure use that term. Perhaps they still use that term. I'm not sure. But the Arizona Rules of Civil Procedure do not use that term. And the federal rules uh, match the Arizona rules from that standpoint. There's no mention of uh, speaking to the person most knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. So, Katie, here's a little pop quiz Mm -hmm. here for you. Um, There's likely to be more of these as we (laughs) go along. Can't wait. And uh, this is fair because, Katie, you are an associate at my firm. I am. And you need to learn. Uh, Right?
1: I got to learn somehow. Got
0: to (laughs) learn. And it's also especially appropriate because you're my little sister, right? Yeah. And what kind of big brother doesn't teach his little sister about organizational depositions, right?
1: That's so true. And
0: I'm also the uncle to those three boys that we were just mentioning earlier. That's right. And I want to make sure that they have a proper understanding of organizational depositions as well.
1: I know. They'll thank you for it someday.
0: So, Katie, why... Would you want to take an organizational deposition?
1: Um, so that you can find out the company's perspective, maybe their rules, their regulations, the actions they've taken.
0: Okay. so let's let's just take a stroll back in time. and we don't have to stroll too far back because we we did one of these depositions just within the last month, right? We did, yeah. Um, and that case involved a slip and fall
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, in a in a major retailer store, right? Yes. Yes. And we don't want to say the name of that retailer, just in case. Just in case they, um, you know, make us regret it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Katie. Yes. In that case. We had a, a client that was walking through the store and there was uh, moments earlier, an employee of the store, this is during the early morning hours, mm-hmm. who was running an auto scrubber on the on the floor and leaving behind a, a wet surface, at least I would have described it as wet, <laughs> uh, that's
1: not how they described yeah, it.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly how they tried to thread that needle. It was a mist. It was a mist.
1: <laughs> it was not
0: wet. No, I wouldn't say it was wet. The floor was not wet. There was just a mist on it. Mist. Um, so they they had just auto-scrubbed the floor, and there's some video surveillance, right? And you can see uh, the, the sheen on the floor uh, that is sometimes produced by mist. <laughs> um, and... They don't have any signs out, right? And right. so uh, our client slips, falls, hurts herself very badly, mm-hmm. multiple surgeries. And years later, here we are doing an organizational deposition. Yes. Okay. So why? Why did we want to do an organizational deposition in that situation? It's uh, Is it really necessary that we find out the corporate position on issues uh, for our case. It's a slip and fall case for crying out loud, right? That's right. Okay, so so why? Why are we doing an organizational depo?
1: Well, from my perspective, one of the things that we wanted to have them admit to on camera was that there weren't signs posted, and there should have been signs posted.
0: Okay, but we could have done that by uh, noticing up the deposition of the manager on duty, right? True. So why didn't we just do that?
1: Um... There were a few other things we wanted to ask them. We wanted to ask them what their position was on our client's actions. Okay. Whether she contributed to the fall or should have taken some precautions.
0: Yeah, what else?
1: Um, what else? You tell me.
0: I'm gonna tell you. <laughs> so the... Um, the thing that happens when you get into um, deposing a representative for an organization is they, it's known as bandying. Hmm. Um, and I, I haven't done any research on the etymology of the word bandying, but it's uh, it's a word that you hear from time to time, or at least you hear it if you're the child of our father.
1: You hear that word bandied about.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that that word was bandied about in our house <laughs> growing up, um, and I kind of had this sense of uh, yeah, bandied. I'm sure I used the word from time to time. I was never shy about uh,
1: <laughs> you know
0: taking a shot with the words that I had heard,
1: throwing out some vocab.
0: But um, bandying is a it's a tactic basically. It's pointing the finger elsewhere. Mm. Uh, oh no no no! That, don't ask me. You need to ask. Uh, you need to ask this person on the next floor. Oh, you you would need to talk about the uh, the person who was in charge of those files. Where's that person? They they retired seven <laughs> years ago. Oh wow! Uh, is there anybody else? Well, you could try. And on and on and on. Mm. And they will they will bandy you to death if you let them in litigation. So the organizational. Deposition is a – it's a tool created by the rules of civil procedure that prevents defendants, not just defendants, any deponent, from bandying about their adversary, just pointing the finger so you can never get an answer to your question. They don't have to lie to you. All they have to do is just put you in this infinite loop of – actually, it's not a loop. It's just an infinite –
1: Progression of finger pointing. Yes,
0: an infinite progression of finger pointing. That's a good way to put it. That was
1: my band while I was in high school. Yes. (laughs) That's right. That's
0: also, um, that would be a good name for a lawyer band. Infinite progression of finger pointing. I love that idea. (laughs) That could be our house band for this podcast. The infinite progression of finger pointing. Okay. Um, So, and that's what they'll do. And in fact, they still do it even when you have properly noticed an organizational deposition. But the difference is you make them pay a price for it mm. in an organizational deposition. Um, so what I like to do in when I'm planning to take an organizational deposition is I put a lot of thought into the drafting of my deposition notice. Um, it's... Uh, it's a ton of work. I mean, I, I have spent, I'm sure that there have been 30B6 deposition notices that I have worked on for 60 hours. Wow. Um, and I, I put a lot of thought into exactly what do I uh, want them to have to designate a representative to, uh, to come and answer questions. So it, I know this is not super exciting, but I'm just going to go ahead and read the rule here, and make some commentary. Do it. So here, <laughs> here it goes. Um, we're going to be reading now from the rules of civil procedure. If you've got children under the age of eight, <laughs> you haven't had the talk with them yet. Uh, you, this might be a good time to send them out of the room, unless you think your children uh, can handle it. Um, all right, here we go. Thirty B six in its deposition notice or subpoena. A party may name as the deponent a public or private corporation, a limited liability company, a partnership, an association, a governmental agency, or other entity. So the magic words are you must then describe with reasonable particularity the matters for examination. Okay, well, what does that mean, reasonable particularity? You know, you're not going to get a judge to rule in advance probably on – what is – what will constitute reasonable particularity in your case. Um, so what I like to do is I start with a with a very large um, scope uh, for the examination. What do I want to know about? What's everything that I want to know about? Um, and then I limit it from there. I don't want it to be too broad because that's really not reasonable either, is it? Not hey um, – Giant corporation. Uh, we hereby give you notice, as the plaintiffs in this case, that uh, we want to depose you. And the, the subjects, uh, the things that we want to depose you about, or to, to use the language of the rule, um, the subject, the matters for examination are everything pertaining to your business <laughs> and the incident that is the subject of this lawsuit and other related matters. <laughs> okay, is that reasonable particularity? No. Um, you, you've you essentially um, told them that they need to prepare someone to come prepared to talk about everything. Um, and that's no good because when they show up prepared to discuss nothing, which they will, almost no matter what you do, they're yeah. going to show up prepared to discuss nothing. Um, but when that happens and then you go back to the judge and say judge, look, they came totally unprepared then then you will be at the stage where uh, you'll be showing the judge okay well this is what I told them to prepare for and then the judge will obviously say well counsel how how are they supposed to prepare for that that's that's not reasonable particularity So it, your subjects, your matters for examination do need to be defined with reasonable particularity but you can also go too far the other way, can't you yes. And I have, I have made this mistake in the past. Instead of, you know, earlier I gave the example where I said, okay, everything about your business, uh, everything that's, uh, might be relevant to this claim and other related matters. Okay. That that's everything essentially. Right. But it's brief. I mean, when your opponent gets that, they're going to be able to read through that pretty quickly. I've made the other mistake too. Mm-hmm. I, I have attached to my deposition notice. I've said, okay. The subjects for examination are, and then it says, see exhibit A. Yeah. And then I attach exhibit A and it's 16 pages, single spaced. <laughs> and that by itself, it actually hurts you. I mean, I, I've been there. I've been on the wrong side of that argument hmm. where I'm saying, judge, uh, hey, this is reasonable particularity. I mean, how much more particular can I get? This is a 16 pages, single spaced. That was 60 hours of work, judge. Um, <laughs> But, of course, the judges' eyes glaze over, everybody's eyes glaze over, and they're like, oh, this is, uh, this is the most boring thing ever. I don't want to read your 16 pages. And you can't get anything from the judge in that situation either. So
1: Particular but not reasonable.
0: Yes, particular but not reasonable. So when you are drafting a deposition notice, you need to be reasonably particular. Oh, by the way, here, here is what the party that is being deposed is required to do when they receive your deposition notice. The rule says the named entity must then designate one or more officers, directors, managing agents, or other persons. Hmm. Other persons doesn't even have to be an employee. It certainly does not have to be the person most knowledgeable. Interesting. And here's some important language also. Who consent to testify on its behalf. Hmm. So the representative, the person who shows up to testify on behalf of the organization, must consent to testify on its behalf. Well, I have had the situation occur many times. It's surprising how often it comes up where the organization says, oh, oh, you want to know about that policy that we drafted? Oh, you want to know why we made the decision on in this particular situation? Oh, darn. We really wish we could help you there. But uh, the person who did that doesn't work here anymore. They haven't been here for seven years. (laughs) Or they, that was done by three different people and none of them work here. And one of them works in, uh, you know, they're not even in the country anymore. And the other one's dead. And uh, just the the third one, you wouldn't like them. (laughs) So we're not even going to bother putting you. We wouldn't put you in touch with them. You you wouldn't like them. At least we don't like them. (laughs) Um, So this happens all the time. And so uh, the point is, The rule does not allow them to simply escape examination just because the person or persons are are no longer employees or they have a bad relationship with those people Mm -hmm. or they're afraid of what those people might tell us if we ever got an opportunity to talk to them. The rule requires them to designate persons who consent to testify on the entity's behalf. The rule goes further then and says if the entity designates more than one person to testify— it has to set out the matters on which each person will testify. The entity the organization may come in and they may say, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna divide this up. We've got three different representatives, and uh, they're gonna talk about they're gonna answer your questions." These representatives, and um, then you should say, "Okay, who's gonna answer what?" And the attorney on the other side very likely will tell you, "We'll figure it out when we get there." <laughs> you know, you just ask your question. And yeah, we'll be there, yeah. and uh, whoever we think is going to do the best job of answering that question, that's who we'll have answer your question. One of the good things about that, from, from my perspective, it means nobody is going to be prepared to testify. Mm. We've got a committee of people who are all hoping that somebody else <laughs> knows how to answer the questions, and the lawyer that's representing this organization to be deposed probably hasn't gone through that process, or else they would have been able to tell you, okay, this this representative will speak on subjects one through three. This representative will testify on these other subjects and so forth.
1: Okay.
0: Okay. So the next thing in the rule is each person, each designated person must testify about information known or reasonably available to the entity. So here we come back to the notion of, hey, this guy, he doesn't work here anymore. He hasn't worked here for seven years. So there's a couple of possibilities here. This rule does not require the representative of the organization to have personal knowledge about the things no. that they're going to testify about. Fine. Let's say in our case that we did recently, slip and fall, mm-hmm. um, let's say we wanted to know why the store implemented a policy that uh, signs should be placed in the area that the scrubber is operating. We want to know why they implemented that policy. Right. So we, we tell the uh, our defendant, hey, one of our subjects for examination is uh, why did you implement this policy?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's possible that our uh, our deponent or the attorney for our deponent might say, well, the person that wrote that policy is retired. Um, and so, you know, we just don't know now. We don't know why we did it. <laughs> Probably not good enough yeah. because the, the organization is required to designate someone who then must testify about information known or reasonably available to the entity, right? Mm-hmm. So even though the guy that was on the committee that drafted the policy of, you know, how we put up signs for auto scrubbers, even though that guy's retired, right. you know, the organization still can probably figure out why they adopted that policy. And so the individual is responsible to, provided they consent, it's the organization that really has the responsibility. But once they've designated the person and the person consents, that person has to testify about information known or reasonably available to the entity. So if they say, well, we don't know because the guy retired, Mm -hmm. then that's probably not good enough. Or if we ask, what did you mean in the regulation when it said, hey, put up signs in the area? Um, What did you mean by the area? Yeah. Oh, we can't tell you because uh, <laughs> uh, the dude retired. Okay, not good enough. You have to designate someone to answer that question. Now, the truth of the matter is the guy who wrote that policy seven years ago, he has no he idea how either. to answer that question either. <laughs> I mean, right. he doesn't have a specific memory of, uh, you know, this is what I meant by area or this is why I decided to write that down. He may ha- – he remember. He may remember some things. He's not going to have probably a very clear memory of it. And so this is an example of a situation where I prefer not to be deposing this guy who may have some recollection or may not have some recollection. And whether he does or not, does he really speak for the organization? Maybe, maybe not. But when I'm doing an organizational deposition, I know that this person is speaking for the organization. Mm -hmm. One of the issues that I, I often will uh, make the subject of a uh, 30B6 examination is when there's video surveillance that has gone missing that would have captured important evidence, but the defendant hasn't kept it. Mm-hmm. It has conveniently disappeared. Um, I I think you can do a lot with what I sometimes hear lawyers refer to as contention questions. You ever heard of contention questions, Katie? No. So when I was um, earlier on in my... Career, I, I was in a fairly heated discussion with my opposing counsel, um, regarding contention discovery. He was taking one position, I was taking a different position, and I was, I was arguing pretty hard for my position, mm-hmm. regarding contention discovery. <laughs> and uh, I quickly Googled afterwards, what is contention discovery? <laughs> um, so, contention discovery, is questions. To the effect of, do you contend that, mm. whatever the case may be? So, for instance, in our uh, in our recent slip and fall case that we did the organizational deposition, right. I I included these subjects of examination. Whether you contend any of the following: one, there was no unreasonably dangerous condition that caused harm to plaintiff; two. You did not create the unreasonably dangerous condition. Three, you did not have notice of the unreasonably dangerous condition, and then I go through and I've got, you know, a dozen of those types of questions. And so, this is a, um, this is just an awesome tool here, I believe, because if you were to send your defendant request for admission, saying um, admit that there was an unreasonably dangerous condition on your premises. Do you know what they would say? No. (laughs) (laughs) They would say, deny. Right. And then do you know what we would say?
1: Uh, Bummer. Pretty
0: much. (laughs) (laughs) Because we would be speaking to ourselves. Right. (laughs) Because it's written discovery. Mm -hmm. But in this situation, if they give us some weak answer, nah, Admit this – admit that uh, – actually, I'm, I've done the opposite here. I've said, do you contend there was no unreasonably con- dangerous condition that caused harm to plaintiff? Hmm. I'm going to have to think about that. that. That question alone requires a lot of analysis. Mm-hmm. What is our position here really? Are we saying that this was not a dangerous condition or are we saying that it was open and obvious or are we saying that – there's, there's so many different ways that they could know, uh, that they could go with that. Um, their representative at the deposition isn't going to be prepared. Right. In fact, their default setting, they don't want to lose their job. They don't want to make their boss unhappy. Their default setting is to give you nothing, to deny everything. And uh, for me, that's just as good or better. Uh, if, if they are on the record taking unreasonable position – after unreasonable position, then we win, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what happened in this last deposition. She right. wouldn't admit to any of these things. We say, okay, do you contend any of the following? There was no unreasonably dangerous condition that caused harm to plaintiff. Okay, do you contend that? What yeah. does she say? Uh, yes. Okay, well, that takes me to the, uh, to the next part of this. To the extent that you contend any of the previous dozen things, mm-hmm. um, What's the factual and legal basis for those contentions? And what is your knowledge or information regarding relevant evidence to those contentions? Yeah, and she's stumped. Yeah, okay. Oh, you do contend that, yes. And what is the factual basis for that contention? Well, um, that uh, it wasn't wet. What do you mean? Well, the floor— wasn't wet. Well, you see the video, right? Yeah. Do you see the shimmering floors after the scrubber goes over the top <laughs> of it? Yes. Isn't that shimmer caused by the wetness on the floor? Uh, I wouldn't call it wetness. I'd call it a mist. mist. It's a mist. Oh, okay. Um, so you, your testimony is that that's not an unreasonably dangerous condition. Yes, that's right. Okay. This is your policy It says you have to put up signs in the area where the scrubber is being used until the floor is dry. Right. Why does your policy say that if this isn't a dangerous condition? Do you remember what our our wonderful deponent said? This is actually one of my favorite answers that I've received in a deposition in the last year or so.
1: Tell me what it was. I'm trying to remember.
0: Well, yeah. Oh, yes. Right. That <laughs> regulation. That. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, true. True. Uh, the the regulation, the policy does say to put up signs. Um, but really, it's not because the floor is slippery. Because it's not. Right. It's because it's not wet. It's just it's it's misty. Right. Um. So the reason we put up those signs is not because the floor is wet and slippery, but because um, we don't want people to run into the scrubber. That's right. So those, those signs are there to warn people not to run into the scrubber. That's why it says to put up signs until the area is dry right. so that they won't run into the scrubber.
1: And what do those warning signs?
0: That, this was That was the great moment. <laughs> it
1: was awesome. Okay. What do those signs say? Floors.
0: Yeah, they say caution: wet floors. So those signs, I see what you're saying. The policy is there to stop people from running into the scrubbers, the auto scrubber machines. Yeah. So it was a it was a fun little uh, examination, but it got better because <laughs> I said so. Um, how long have you been managing this store? Long time, you know. Oh, I've been here at this store for several years. I was I at a different know. store before that. I said, well, how many incident reports do you do a year? Like, oh, I don't know. Can't remember what she said.
1: I think she said ten or so.
0: And th- yeah, I think it was ten or so, yeah. maybe twenty. I said, Do some of those involve slip and fall? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. How many of those are customer ran into auto scrubber?
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't. Per- I don't know of one. Yeah. But she knew that it could happen.
0: Yeah. Well, she knew that it could happen because – and this was actually a nice moment too because she said, oh, it's happened to me. (laughs) I have run into the auto scrapper before. At any rate, the uh, contention questions are awesome for organizational depositions because – when you get the ridiculous denial, which you are going to get over and over and over again, because it's, they have such a default setting towards protecting their employer, um, that you can really make them pay for taking those ridiculous positions. And you you really expose them.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And um, so the three parts of your deposition notice where you're you're laying out the, uh, the subjects of examination. One, identify some specific areas, reasonable particularity. Two, specific questions. Mm-hmm. And this is where I do get a little bit more specific. If there are really specific details I need answered, uh, video surveillance is an area that I, I go into. And then the third one is contention questions. Um, okay. Whether you contend any of the following followed up by what is the factual and legal basis for these contentions? And what evidence do you have, um, your, your knowledge or information regarding relevant evidence, including its existence and its substance? So you can go a long ways with those 30B6 depositions. Um, I also include some real general questions uh, in most of my uh, depot notices for organizational depositions. Uh, I'll say, as to the facts pertaining to the incidents, your contentions and beliefs as to, one, what happened? Two, why did it happen? Three, how did it happen? Four, who was involved and how? Five, who is to blame and why? Six, when did it happen? Seven, where did it happen?
1: That's good stuff. It is good stuff. I remember it came up in that deposition when she kept, opposing counsel kept wanting to say, beyond the scope of the notice, to protect her... um, Her manager from having to answer some of your questions, and and you were able to hold up our notice and say, "This subject is right in these." Yeah, you can't ask that question,
0: right? Um, Yes, I can. No, you can't. It's uh, beyond the scope of your your deposition notice. No, this is this is about how the incident happened or who was to blame, Mm -hmm. and here it is. You know, another benefit of. These kinds of deposition notices. Sometimes, um, I can think of at least one case where this, uh, where one of the practical uh, consequences of the deposition was that it got the attention of the the people in the uh, in the C-suite. You know, the chief executive officer and, and people that are high up in the organization, um, because. A lot of times your claims are not showing up on the radar of the the top executives of the different organizations that are involved in the litigation as defendants or or whatever capacity they may be involved in. Um, But in the right case, you need those people involved. Mm. Um, They may see more risk in this case than the – in the case than the the lower-level claims handlers may see. Um, I had a case – a few years ago where the facts were just, I I mean, they were just appalling. Mm -hmm. It it was awful. Um, But the, the defendant had some arguments. You know, they had some decent arguments and some okay defenses that they were raising. And the lower level people in the organization that were managing this case were kind of feeling like, yeah, we're doing okay. And I think we've got some really good things going for us. And they just weren't. We mediated the case once. They, they came with very little money, and I'm thinking, my goodness, this, I think this is a big case, and they, they genuinely do not seem to um, feel the same way about it. Mm-hmm. And um, later when we got into the case and I, I sent out um, – well, we were already into the case. When we got deeper into the case, I did an organizational deposition of this large corporation, um, and I identified these subjects on which they needed to designate representatives, and because of the nature of the subjects – the, the, the deposition notice made its way up into the uh, you know the top levels of this company mm-hmm. and their their deponent was a very high ranking executive in this company. and the uh, we did that deposition and the executive had his eyes open to the exposure that they had. It was a very uncomfortable deposition for him. We mediated the case again shortly after that and it was night and day. With the uh, the money that they brought to settle the case, so sometimes you want the attention of the top executives, and a good thirty b six deposition can sometimes do it. Not always, though. Usually not, <laughs> but every now and then.
1: Okay, let me ask you this too. What are some of the consequences if a an organization is not prepared for the deposition?
0: Oh, I am so glad you asked that. I
1: thought you might be. Yeah. So
0: the um, there's some case law in Arizona, and there's federal case law that uh, is very similar to what I'm about to describe, that says that a failure to prepare for a 30B6 deposition is tantamount to a failure to appear at the 30B6 deposition. And so I have, um, well, so the next question is, okay, well, what happens if somebody fails to appear at their deposition? Um, Well, Couple of different things could happen. Uh, one, if, if it's a willful non-appearance, then the sanctions can be pretty severe. The sanctions may include dismissing the pleadings or striking the pleadings that have been filed by that party. Um, and you know, if if your if your party that you're defend that you're deposing is the defendant in the case, and they don't appear for the deposition. Then you can file, and I have filed a motion to strike their answer.
1: Mm.
0: And if their answer is stricken, the case is over. Yeah. Essentially, I mean, not entirely, but you would uh, what you would do after their answer is stricken is you would move for uh, a judgment to be entered against the defendant. And then the defendant may have an opportunity to come in and argue the amount of the judgment, possibly, uh, but maybe not. Okay. Um, so that's that's kind of the ultimate sanction is that the the pleadings of the uh, non-appearing party may be stricken. But that's a severe sanction. And I don't think I've ever had a court – actually, I did I did once have a court strike a defendant's answer for non-appearance. But I don't think that that defendant was an organizational defendant. Hmm. Um, I've also filed motions um, against organizational deponents to have their answer stricken because they've failed to properly prepare. And I've said, okay, this is tantamount to a failure to appear. Judge, you should treat this as a failure to appear. You should strike their pleading. Um, and I've had judges consider that issue. And I've done extensive briefing on this issue. Um, and the um, the judge has given me something less than what I asked for, but still something good. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's a, a sanction of, okay, I'm going to order you back in to have your uh, representative answer these questions again, but this time you better be prepared. And I'm going to make you pay the fees of the uh, plaintiff's counsel for you know the time that you wasted in all of these motions and on the first deposition, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I've asked for spoliation remedies. Um, okay, they have they've refused to uh, prepare. And so you ought to preclude them from making a certain defense because they've deprived us of the ability to, uh, you know, examine the trustworthiness of this evidence that they're putting forward. Um, and so there's a lot of different things you can do. Um, judges despise those kinds of motions (laughs) they they truly hate them. So it's hard to get really great sanctions. Um, and it's, uh, it's probably impossible to get great sanctions if you don't have a great deposition notice to start off with. Um, but oftentimes the issue doesn't get litigated that far. Mm-hmm. You, you have the um, – you do the deposition. Your deponent shows up woefully unprepared. They're not ready to answer a lot of your questions. Uh, they answer some of your questions. You hopefully get some good stuff out of the deposition. You're moving forward towards trial, uh, all the while you are threatening the sanctions that could come for their failure to appear. Right, and it's in that context sometimes that you get the case settled. Yeah. Um, so, it, it, you know, negotiations are about power. Who has the power? Well, y- you have more power in a negotiation when, when you've done a kick-ass 30b6 deposition. Mm-hmm. You've got even more power when you've got a real credible threat of sanctions um, against the other party. So that's what happens. Um, You file a motion. (laughs) That's how everything happens. What are you afraid to ask about 30B6? Okay, one other thing that I think is um, really a perfect application for 30B6 depositions, and I, I mentioned video surveillance, and this is closely related to that. Um, when it comes, when it comes to an issue like, where is the video surveillance? Uh, I mean, you got cameras up here. Why didn't you guys keep the video? What did the video show? Um, nobody ever knows anything. Oh gosh, we don't know.
1: Yeah.
0: Did anybody ever look at it? No, no. Well, we don't know, but I'm going to go with no, but also (laughs) I don't know. Um, the, um, and it's really easy for them to do that because it's, there's so many other people to blame. Like, I don't know. I'm just, I just work here. Right. Um, I'm, do you think I installed the video surveillance camera? You think I, what do you think I, it's just, it's too easy for them. Mm-hmm. Um, that applies to anytime there's missing records. And I have a case where there is just a, a crucial mission missing record, a crucial missing record. Mm-hmm. And I ask the uh, the person who ought to know, but that person doesn't know. I took that deposition not too long ago.
1: Yeah.
0: So what do I do now? Oh, I thought. Oh, I thought you would know. <laughs> no, I don't know. You
1: were supposed to know.
0: Oh. Uh, so who would know? Well, maybe. Uh, maybe the office manager. Have you? Did you ask Nikki? <laughs> um, anytime there's a missing record, that's a good subject to attack in a 30B6 deposition, because the question can be not only what does your organization know about that missing record, and it puts the burden on them to do the inquiry, to find out all information that is reasonably available to the organization, that's on them. They have to go find that out. Not only is it on them to find out what happened to that particular record, you can also get testimony from them on what should have happened to that record. What's the process? What's, what do we do in this company? So, for instance, when I do my 30B6 deposition in regards to this missing record, um, I will start off by asking whoever is designated as the representative, I'll say, what happened to this record? I don't know. Yeah. And then I'm going to ask, what did you do to find out what happened to that missing record? And you know what they're going to say? Nothing. Nothing. They won't have done anything even though this is critical and it's a super important part of their defense. That's why the record is missing, I believe. <laughs> um, what did you do to find it? Uh, what do you mean? Well, look at the deposition notice. You see that? Yeah. I always mark my deposition notice as exhibit one to my uh, to my deposition, by the way. I say, okay, go to exhibit number one of your deposition. You see that? Yeah. That's your deposition notice. You see that? Yes. Have you ever looked at this document before? Yes, I have when did you first see this document? At least half the time, the person answering that question will say, just now. Yeah. So how much preparation did they do for the deposition? Zero. They didn't even know what you were going to ask them questions about until just now. Probably what happened is they talked to the lawyer Mm -hmm. and the lawyer said, hey, um, can you come and answer questions about that accident and they'll say, uh, okay.
1: Do I have to? be
0: like, Really? What do I what do I need to do? Well, just just tell the truth. That's what they'll say. <laughs> if it's well Wink. Yeah. No. <laughs> Wink? No. I, I actually I have to say, I have a very high opinion of the um of the defense bar and the plaintiffs bar here in Arizona. I I don't believe I mean, I, I'm sure that it happens, but I think it's exceedingly rare that yeah. lawyers, at least in our area of practice, um, elicit false testimony from their uh, clients or that they they coach them to lie. I, I don't believe that that happens very agree. often. So um, going back to the uh, our imagined conversation about, you know, between the lawyer and the the representative, uh, yet, yeah, can you come and answer questions about that accident? Yeah. Um, okay. Um, what do I need to do? Just tell the truth. All right. Uh, anything else? Yeah. Get there an hour early. We'll talk beforehand Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, we'll just kind of get you ready. Maybe they meet the day before, but the the representative never even sees the areas of examination that I've designated at least half the time. Wow. Um, and so they're not prepared. And so that, you know, my next question after that is, oh, well, that's really unfortunate that you haven't ever read this, but I'm going to show you something now, and I have some instructions at the beginning. It's your responsibility to prepare. Failure to prepare is tantamount to a failure to appear. There could be serious sanctions. You see that? Yeah. All right. Um, do you see here where one of my subjects of examination is um, what happened to the damn record? <laughs> you see that? Yeah. Just read the thing about how you're supposed to prepare, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're telling me you didn't do any preparation to answer that question. Is that right? That's right. You you didn't talk to one single person in your company in an attempt to find out what happened to that record, did you? No, I didn't. You didn't conduct one search through your computer system to try to find that record, did you? No, I didn't. You never contacted your IT guy to find out if there's any way that they could recover that record, did you? No, I didn't. I mean, that's a mic drop moment there, Uh folks, because think about what we get to argue there. Okay, the vital record in this case has disappeared. You have been summoned here under the rules of civil procedure, required to answer questions about how and why that record disappeared. And what do you do? Well, first, you guys made the record disappear, and then what you've done here is tantamount to a failure to appear. So now I really do have something. Mm -hmm. Now I can go to the judge and say, judge, we know this record existed at one time for these reasons. We also know that they just essentially didn't show up to answer questions about where that record has gone. And I'm in a position now to ask for some powerful sanctions and I think I've got a good chance of getting them if that's the way it plays out. Even if I don't get them, even if I don't get the sanctions, I've got some powerful evidence that I'm going to put in front of the jury yeah. at trial. They're going to, they're going to be able to connect the dots. Hmm. Hmm. They made the record disappear, and then they didn't want to answer any questions about it. They're hiding something. Yeah. So. That's a good subject to tackle in a 30B6 deposition. Corporate policies and procedures, missing records, that's good stuff. Okay, all you brilliant legal eagles, that's a wrap. That's it for this episode of Clough's Notes on Arizona Lawyer Life. Thank you for listening. Thank you to my guests. I'll see you soon.